From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hello out there in Radio Land. It is your favorite moderator, as opposed to your favorite president. I am Justin Russell, joining me in studio for the best political talk show you never heard of. He is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. He is the one we know as Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Uh, joining me also in studio, he is the former Joe Biden political operative for the Democratic uh, political or political machine. I lost my train of thought. I hate Dan Lipner Esquire's in studio. Glad to see you, Justin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you. Uh, he is the author of such books as uh, American Politics on the Rocks. He is the author, Rich Rubino. Hello, Rich. Hello, Justin. And joining us, I think, still on the line with us from Boca del Vista. He is the retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is the one we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Hey, Ken. Now, Ken's, Ken's off. Oh, I thought we were going to have Ken for this episode. I guess not. Uh, well, Rich, you're the only one remote, so let's get okay. to it. Uh, in case you haven't been noticing, uh, there's a there's a strike going on, and a pretty sizable one at General Motors. Uh, 50,000 GM workers went to the picket line in a vote over the weekend uh, basically a work stoppage going on with General Motors, a four-year deal that expired. Uh, they could not come to an agreement. The impasse was so broad. Usually on stuff like this, the UAW will give management the benefit of the doubt. Apparently, these gaps were so big, the UAW walked out on GM. Uh, this is This has economic repercussions. This has... Uh, this has political repercussions. This is a bigger deal than I think we've seen as far as work stoppages go. Uh, Alan Moore, from an economic standpoint, uh, how big of a deal is this walkout, not just the immediate effects, but the larger long-term effects? Well, um, the, the, the immediate effects, not a big deal yet. The the bigger question is how long will this last? How long can the can these uh, union strikers who don't make the money that their predecessors used to make, um, and and they in terms of their their compensation though I think they get paid like two hundred and fifty bucks a week, and from watching on television and th- thinking about it, that's not a lot of money to live on if you're the if you're the the primary um, uh, breadwinner uh, breadwinner in your in your home. And I think the hope by the by the UAW folks is, let's show we're willing to do it. Let's put up or shut up, but let's cut a deal before too long. My hunch is that given all that has changed in the U.S. auto industry and how many different manufacturers there are in the, in United, the United States, States, in southern states, that, that who, where the members aren't UAW workers – uh, given the problems that Ford Motor Company is having, just with its whole product line, um, uh, that that the the leverage of the workers is not as great as it once was when there was a 
big three right. and whatever happened with the striking company and they would take turns would become kind of the industry norm. Right. It's the, the, the whole marketplace is just, is is very very different. That is not to say that the UAW doesn't have legitimate issues. Um, uh, GM has become after government bailouts uh, and and some and some good product choices profitable in the moment and the what the workers would like to do is get a piece of that profit but, in perpetuity right. in pay raises rather than one time one shot bonuses where management would say we got we, we made a bunch of money here's a check for everybody but you don't we're not going to give you a 15 20% pay raise because we don't know about next year and the right. year after this is a tough tough global market it, subject to uh, to great harm during recessions. Right. Dan Lipner, though, in, in, looking at it from GM's standpoint, uh, I know for a fact GM, on average, you're looking at about $65 an hour with benefits. Ford is about 58 Chrysler, uh, Chrysler uh, Fiat is about somewhere in the area of 52 BMW, Honda, Volkswagen, the non-unized plants are at about 50 anywhere from 48 to 50 bucks an hour with benefits right well, now let's not understate the with benefits line let's not take home pay that's that with benefits pretty much exclusively means health care well that's it's how, the gold that's standard health care but that's health care that's pension that's vacation time i mean that, that's a that's a healthy package it's, it's mostly healthcare. It's, a, it's a healthy package though but what my point is is does gm have a point look i i'm not i'm not going to candy coat it i am very much pro uh pro trade unions i'm a big supporter of the trade unions even as a republican but th- does gm have a a, a a gripe here saying look we already give you the top pay in the industry we're already giving you the benefits that trump everything else in industry. Is this a matter of the UAW making a power grab to be greedy? So the narrative is part of the question. And this is now, and depending on which Democratic candidate ends up being the nominee, it could also be the larger narrative. Um, General Motors is as profitable now as they have ever been. I believe there is one of their most profitable positions ever. Right. Um, so that said, are they profitable just because of the decisions of management, or are they profitable because of the hard work and the quality of their employees, or is it some combination of them both? What is clear is that profitability, while the people who are working are getting a paycheck, they aren't getting the same kind of income that management is getting or even the stockholders are getting. So with General Motors making those kind of profits, who deserves to reap the benefits? And the UAW is suggesting that their folks have been working hard p- producing a quality product, and that quality product is driving revenue, and they deserve a piece of the action. In addition to that, is also ensuring that their membership does not stagnate and disappear, meaning that General Motors does not continue to open up plants in non-unionized countries like Mexico. So there is a real question that that they're actually fighting for for their livelihood and their existence over time that blue collar workers should exist they should exist in the united states and they should be and they should be paid both as commensurate with their skill 
and valued for the product that is being produced. But, but Alan, from a Republican standpoint, you know, GM, GM has largely, even through the rough times back in 07, 08, and during the bailout of GM, you know, everybody says it was the government bailout. The UAW put some skin in the game for them, but... Could it be argued that they've also seen the benefit of that skin in the game with the fact that they are on the high end of of the pay scale for auto workers? Well, the ones who were lucky enough to keep their jobs. I mean, there was there's been massive downsizing at that company and throughout that industry with with robotics and in, improved and increased uh, productive uh, better management practices. Well, it's it a lot of it's just tech, better technology, and then as Dan points out, some of it is offshoring, moving stuff overseas to to try to compete in in a, in a highly competitive market I, I will take I would take issue with one with one thing that Dan was suggesting about how about how great all of this was for shareholders because most shareholders in US auto companies have taken a massive bath since the uh, since before and and then during uh, the recession more, um, they, more, more of a bath than they, those people who got laid off what I'm just look. You were talking about how how great they are doing. We're, how much we're, we're, we're being talking. Rewarded. We're talking. Hold present, on, we're talking on, present on. tense. Hold on. Well, no, no. Let, there's let me answer. But there's there's <laughs> most shareholders buy and hold, and and most shareholders have taken uh, a, a massive bath. I don't. I'm not trying to compare it with losing a job to investing money, but the, the all those all those auto companies stocks. And, and have, by the way, have, up until have tanked, which which is which is makes it really challenging for those companies to raise additional capital to make the kinds of investments that they need to stay competitive. And the fact of the matter is you don't need as many people to produce really good cars and, today as, as you used to. So and by the way, with GM from tension in and those robots can work just as hard in the United States as they can in Mexico. No, but, well, but wait a minute, wait a minute. But also realize the fact that you're also talking about shareholders. The American taxpayer up until about three and a half years ago was one of the largest shareholders in GM. Thank you to the bailout. Yeah, no. So let's let's, let's, let's be, be clear. clear. I, I, I was a proponent of the bailout. So as were you know anybody that has any common sense would be. I'm not certain Alan was a proponent of the bailout. Well, <laughs> I, I don't think he was antagonistic. No, I was less less enthusiastic. But having said that, the 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 federal government got paid back. Right. Yeah. Right. Which without paid back, we got we got we got a profit. Which was. And not necessary was certainly not expected, and it was not required. It, it was it was very fortunate. But the federal government made was, some cash off this. Well, you know, they're. I mean, in the scope of the federal budget, it was pennies, but well, it's, but still, it, we they, got they, more they, money back. Well, you get, but 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 you're getting no return on the money while it's while it's sitting out there. So there's the the the, the, the point is the feds didn't do as bad as everybody badly as everybody thought they would do and and probably poor old Ford Motor Company who said we're not going to take your money they're now hurting yeah, they're not wishing very they had, sure. very significantly you know they, these these decisions are made that it it's interesting seeing an auto company on strike cuz it's a throwback to for some of us to you know, the 1950s, the, 50s, the 60s, 60s, 70s, the 70s, even. when when they would take turns right. uh, uh, going on strike, but so much has changed. And 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 Dan does make a very valid point about 
you know, we talk about the value of of the the hourly package, but for many people, what's their paycheck look like? And if the paycheck isn't moving um, and moving moving up when the prices of things are, they tend to forget that the platinum standard healthcare that most of them have for life, um, which creates and and and. Uh, creates legacy costs for those companies that 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 they have to bear as long as they continue to operate. They've been right. able to reduce to some extent their some of the the pension leg- legacy costs because they had highly generous pensions for many many years. They give be- more health benefits and better pensions and and not as much in the way of 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 of, of, of hourly pay increases, right. but but they were still way out of whack with the rest of the world, and that was part of right. the problem. That in overall poor quality well, or and, lesser and, quality and, and, and poor decision making by management. I mean, there is there, no question. No, there, no, there are some pretty stupid products being pushed out. I mean, there was a very famous uh, interview done. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember the magazine that did it, but they interviewed both the, the CEO of General Motors and the CEO of BMW. And I asked them both one simple question. There was a lot more to the interview. They, they right. made sure to ask one particular question. They asked the CEO of BMW what you do. And his response was, we make cars. They asked the CEO of General Motors what they do. They said, we sell cars. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. and no, no and but there is something to be said there that that, that the Madison Avenue of just the selling the sizzle that American car companies did for decades and didn't pay attention to the rest of the world catching up and that came to bite us in the with the Great Recession. Yeah, but, yeah, but that, that, that also said, that, but came now, to bite us in the seventies. With, with with the Japanese cars, yeah, and, and that's then that what was it started, but yeah, it didn't but really also, do us in. <laughs> no, but that was also reversed by no, no, Lee Iacocca and the Chrysler resurgence. I mean, it was largely Lee, and they were Lee, bailed out too. That right. Lee Iacocca convinced the federal government Carter. to bail to bail out Chrysler and made it made it very profitable, and at one point made it the number two car manufacturer for I mean, um, a minute. Um, American car manufacturers have not been been noted for being innovators. At least the big three haven't. I mean, Tesla's technically an American car manufacturer, but they're, they're nowhere near the big three. So, but that said, we're, we're kind of losing the forest for the trees. Coming back to the question of management versus workers and where should the profits go? Not to say that shareholders don't deserve a, 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 piece, of the, a piece of the apple. They absolutely do. However, those people who put blood, sweat, and tears into into well, putting, then you're getting into a chicken and egg scenario where okay, the, the without the investors, you don't have money to without make cars. both the, without the without both the, the workers, with, you're not making cars. Without so both the chicken and chicken and egg, there is no Chick Fil A yeah. <laughs> or Popeye or Popeyes. Anyway, Rich Rubino has you know. Alan brought up the idea of the the auto strikes of the the fifties, the sixties, the seventies. Yep. And you know those usually had implications to the administration in the White House at the time. Are we going to see the same implications on the Donald Trump White House? And we'll get into the details of this. But from a, an, a large overview, it, does a, does an auto worker strike have the same impact on an election year that it did maybe forty or thirty years ago? 
No, I don't think so. Um, I don't. Th- my guess is that the Trump administration is going to stay agnostic on it and not really comment on it. I think that what's going to happen potentially on the Democratic side is that you're going to see, like you did with the stop and shop workers, for example, you're going to see a lot of presidential candidates saying that they are, you know, they would never cross a picket line. They're going to say that they support the workers. You're going to see a lot of them probably on the picket line, which always causes, you know, the I'm sure Bernie already has his tickets. (laughs) (laughs) which I think causes people to look at it and say, you know, why are they there? Is they kind of awkward? Is this something that's genuine for them? I can see, you know, a commercial coming out right now for Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren standing on the picket line, talking about the GM people, talking about how they're just like the people that she grew up with in Oklahoma, something to that effect. But it just puts the Democrats, I think, the side that they want to be on is the side of the workers. It's interesting because what Donald Trump did Part of what he did what he, in his stable geniusness, I guess, in 2016, is he understood issues of trade. And he understood one way to appeal specifically to white working class voters is to get to where the Democrats were on trade. And he kind of took the, he took the issue off the table because, first of all, Hillary Clinton, in part, had supported NAFTA, but also because the Democratic Party, that's one way that they appealed to some kind of socially conservative gun-toting, but, um, you know, GM workers, those, type, those types in places like rural Michigan is saying, we're with, you on, we're with you on trade, we're with you on losing your job, we're with you on outsourcing, we're with you, we need protections for automation. Uh, other than automation, I mean, Donald Trump was right with them, and he, you know, he, I mean, he got to the left of Barack Obama, for example, on, um, on the on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and said that this was an awful agreement, and got to the point where Hillary Clinton had to take that same position, even though she was in the administration that was a supporter of it. So, I think from a political standpoint, this is something where the Democrats can really um, relate to and cause, you know, but, they can really relate right. to the white right. working class, the white working class voters. But I will say this though, I think that what Donald Trump will not say. I keep thinking back of Charles Wilson who was Dwight Eisenhower's Secretary of Defense, and he used to say, um, what's good for General Motors is good for the country. <laughs> and I don't know if that I don't know. I can't imagine any even – I can't even imagine the most fiscally conservative Republican today saying that. So. Well, let's bring up – Well, that's true. I, I think Rich is incorrect. The what? fact of the matter is the states that are particularly of import – um, remember this is the pesky electoral college thing. Um, Michigan, Ohio, Michigan, Ohio. I'm still. So, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at where right now where various different plants, General Motors plants are, and I was very surprised to see apparently they have one in Egypt. Yeah, they um, do. <laughs> but Michigan, Kansas, Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio. Yeah, these are all the places that if you're a political operative, you're thinking, hey. I'd like not to lose these places. And hey, my guy hung his shingle based on bringing jobs back for these people who work here. And as much as you might like management, there is less of them than the people who work in the factories. You're unusually loud this week. I don't know what is going on. (laughs) But Alan Moore, let me ask you Part of my charm. Let me ask you this. You you, You know, Donald Trump came out and said, and this is a quote- uh, my relationship has been very powerful with the UAW, not necessarily with the top person or two, but with the people that work doing automobiles. That is a quote from the president. Uh, nobody has brought more companies in the United States than me. He followed that up. <laughs> just, just let it go. Let it go. But here's the thing: is the the UAW uh, the UAW did make a point of. You know, staying kind of quiet. They normally would have gone for Hillary. They're kind of Democratic, but you've got a, about a 50% base that are lunch pail Republicans in the UAW. 
uh, a lot of the rank and file of the UAW did vote for Trump. But since Trump has been in office, GM has shut down Lordstown. Trump has not done anything to fix that. They now have a strike against GM. They're not doing, you know, other than siring Larry Kudlow in as frontline uh, negotiation help, not much is happening from the White House. Hey, Larry's this. got some charisma. He, no, no, I like Larry. Don't get me wrong. And I'm glad he's there versus, <laughs> do you want Navarro there rather than uh, Kudlow? They, maybe they're both there. I don't. We, yeah, we, we don't know. We, we don't know. We don't know. The we White House is anyway. claiming that they're not intervening, but but they are still sending signals. Still and so, you, and they, you're and absolutely I, right that a year ago the president he went after GM management when they when fourteen thousand jobs were were lost when they closed down a plant. But the problem in Lordstown, the pro- Ohio. The problem. The problem for these companies is we've talked about this in the past. You know they. They make decisions based on the economics of the of of the marketplace, the products, product lines. They do not like to shut down factories. They do not like to let people go. But when they when they get to the point where they feel like they have no choice, they do it and they take the flack and hope that they can come out stronger for the surviving company and surviving employees rather than just never close a plant, never lay off a person, and never stay in business for very long. But, Rich Rubino, is this going to, is this, uh, is this recoverable for Donald Trump? Can he get back the people that he backed at Lordstown, that he backed in Detroit, that he backed in Pennsylvania at, at these factories when he was getting them to their rallies, and now it just doesn't look like he's cashed in those chips. Yeah, no, it's going to be very hard. And if you look at the polls in all those swing states, he's losing in Minnesota, he's losing in Wisconsin, he's losing in just about every one of those, every showdown state there is right now, which is amazing that he's going to you know, New Mexico where he actually lost last time. But, um, but no, I think it's going to be very hard. He's going to talk about at least... We don't know where the macroeconomic uh, where, the, where the macroeconomic sphere is going to be the date on election day of 2020. Nobody does, but he's going to say I brought all these. He's going to say specifically he's going to take credit, no matter where the economic circumstances is. He's going to take credit for it, and he's going to say I brought these jobs back. The reason the economy is in, in this, the reason the economy is in the shape that it's in, he's going to say that it's positive is directly because of him. The question is, will people believe it? I mean, it's the same thing with folks, you know, the farmers, for example, who supported him and campaigned for him. And in the trade war, you know, the terrorists had disproportionately um, have deleterious effects upon them. So as a result, you're seeing, you're seeing, you know, from a qualitative standpoint, in a way, you're seeing a lot of these, a lot of these farmers saying, you know, we voted for him because we thought that he was going to, that he was going to help us economically, but he's not. And I think that, you know, my guess is that Trump and his strategists are thinking right now politically, this is one thing where he does, I think, listen to his strategists, and they're thinking, what is it specifically, you know, we can do that will make it at least make the economy at that, that particular time in those particular swing states um, look like it's on the rise. But you're right, anybody that's lost their job during his administration is probably thinking, you know, I supported him back in 2016. Right. I thought he was going to bring the right. jobs back, but he didn't. Actually, right. Rich makes a good point. So putting on my political operative hat and having done events at – at union factories before on multiple occasions. Right. Where is the Trump photo op for being able to plant his flag in front of saying, this place was closed before I was president. Now look. Yeah. There's some steel manufacturing that's that's been increased because of of Has it worked for coal? It hasn't worked for I mean Has it has it worked for has it worked for auto 
you know, auto manufacturing? No. Has it worked for... I mean, this is a genuine question. I'm curious, yeah, like, where is the photo that, op? That, no, but that's why I'm, I'm, I'm running through the major manufacturing components. I mean, even in even in heavy goods, Alan Moore, I mean, you know, Amana was supposed to be keeping jobs here. They're closing down. You've got... Uh, You've got uh, United Technologies, which owns Carrier in that group. They've got problems. I mean, where are the manufacturing yeah, jobs? Car- Carrier well, was the first thing that him and Mike Pence were supposed to save the jobs in Indiana. And, and they didn't. Well, that's the, pro- that's the problem with, with talking about a particular company or a particular industry or a particular plant at a particular place. You kind of make a promise without having all the information. Meanwhile, it may be that the company decided three years ago that, they've got, or that they're just not going to be able to keep a particular facility. If there's increased demand, which occurs when we when you have got a fairly strong economy, you don't open a new plant. Right. You in, you expand the 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 output of a of a given plant. You add hours. You might assuming add assuming the people. product you're producing meets the market. So this is the 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 global issues at play here. So f- fuel prices. So leaving energy to the side, fuel prices specifically are going to go up thanks to the Saudi Arabian issue. Right. General Motors isn't exactly known for making a whole bunch of uh, highly efficient, uh, right. high mileage vehicles. Right. So uh, this is one of those pesky little decision Dan, things that can hurt Dan, you. That's that's you being played off. Sorry, we got to take a break. Anyway, uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the 2020 election and a couple of other items on our mind. This is Backroom Politics. Stay with us.
from Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hey, we're back. Uh, got Dan Lipner, Alan here in uh, studio. We've got Rich Rubino out there in the hinterlands. And behind the glass, Eric and Rob the Engineer. Uh, kind of an abbreviated segment, this one, because we kind of went long in our discussion of the GM strike. Uh, but I, I don't, I can't go by a week without having some discussion, especially the fact that last Thursday the Democrats had another debate, and they were all on one stage, and and then the bloodletting started. Uh, Dan Lipner is a Democratic political operative. Give me your high level two minutes or less take on the Democratic debate last week at Houston. Castro's a jerk. What, okay, that pretty much covers it. Thank you. Good night, America. You said two minutes or less. I did less. That, you, you, you did it in one second. Good job. Uh, anything you want to add to that? Or No, everyone was fine. It was, it, it was better to see a smaller group of people that were all serious candidates. Um, even uh, Yang's... Uh, Whatever. Chinese P- joke is, is no. Or- I was going to go go with his thousand dollars a month. Oh. Uh, for uh, f- for folks, um, which there's still an FEC question and- that I don't understand how it's legal, but sure, why not? Okay. Why um, not? I suppose he didn't explicitly say if you vote for me, I'll give you this, which uh, it, may, it would make it okay. <laughs> um, so he's got more than a hundred thousand people applying for it. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, and it is worth noting, and unfortunately, Yang's folks aren't spinning this correctly, in my opinion. Uh, this idea came forth while Nixon was president. Whether or not there needed to be a, a a minimum income for all Americans, and the and the government would just cut you a check, because the Nixon folks, for as crazy and, and and problematic as Nixon himself was, he was not a dumb guy, and. And this was partially foreseeing the future of automation that right. we've talked about on this show, that you need to provide for a universal income for people, and having government involved with it not, yeah. is not necessarily the best thing. It's actually an interesting idea, but minus it being explained to folks why you're doing this, and it looks like a gift that you're just paying people to do nothing. And you know, you know what and else that's is a the great counter idea? narrative. And you know what else is a great idea? Pink unicorns, but they don't exist. I mean, is this is this a realistic? Hey, l- 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 listen. Because having he- having heard firsthand. And including, it was once famously caught on camera, a woman telling President Obama, and I'm quoting here, keep the government's hands off my Medicare. Really? <laughs> Apparently Medicare is offered by the pink unicorns and not nothing to do with government involved there. So that said, it needs to be explained. And I'm not, it's not quite clear to me that Andrew Yang is doing a good Andrew, job in- explaining the backstory on his idea. Right, and enough. it might do him a favor to say, by the way, Richard Nixon's White House thought of this as this is well. True. Uh, this is true. I, I, believe, Alan, I believe Patrick Moynihan was actually in the White House as part of that conversation. Actually, as well. actually, it was the Nixon Ted Kennedy uh, uh, health plan. That was a different initiative. That, that, oh, then the one that Andrew Yang's proposed. The one that he's talking oh, about. Okay, which oh. wasn't a, a, a copycat. I mean, basically, Yang said, "I, I want to do this on an experimental basis across the country." Tell me why you should be the winner, and and the the response has been absolutely staggering. I mean, over a hundred thousand people have said, "I want your twelve thousand dollars, a thousand a month for for a year," right. and and I think it's twenty families. So 
and and then he he also in within a day or two received more than a million dollars in in, uh, in donations. campaign donations and then he's got all these new names anyway it was it was uh, it was a gimmick but that was that was what, what's your takeaway from the debate that not a lot changed um, uh, which isn't to say it. it 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 wasn't that good or bad. It wasn't interesting. It just is what it is. I don't know if it's good or bad. I mean, I think it was good that there was only one debate, and uh, but but you leave out people who have a who 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 it, it's all or nothing. You you're know, you're a Marianne Williamson person, aren't well, you? <laughs> no, but you know, I think Senator Bennett is a serious guy, and and. Uh, you know, De Blasio's not my cup of tea, but you know he's a mayor of of, of New York City, and he's still in, as far as I know. Probably couldn't get reelected so, as mayor well, in New York City. But but the, but the, the, the you know the, the mayor of New York City is trailing a mayor in this in a town of Indiana. Well, because that guy uh, was appealing. Hold on, Rich, was that Rich Rubino? He is literally at zero percent, zero percent in New York City. Right. Well, that's because they love him so much as mayor, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. And I think they may have pulled his family along with it. <laughs> I mean, no, all, all, all I'm saying is the you know, remember the Republicans, when they faced too many candidates, they had kind of an A team and a B team, and that was and we got really, Trump. really, and we got un- Trump. really unfair. We might have gotten Trump anyway, but uh, to, to, the, to the sort of B team. <clears throat> so the Democrats tried to be more egalitarian about it and say, okay, you got to meet a certain threshold of of donors and show and and, and showing in polls, in, in polls um, and 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 money number of donors and, and right. money well that that then just caused people to, to go all over facebook and say give me a dollar give me a dollar let me in or I got, in some I got cases, those things from Gillibrand and yep. she ain't in she's gone give me a right. give me a dollar and i'll give 5 dollars in your name to a charity of your choice i mean there were all kinds of crazy ways right. to, to try but to, it's, it's to, not, to, but the, to, to the point is do that. It, it's not entirely working and that and so i'm actually in favor of the egalitarian nature of it um, i sort of wish they hadn't focused on national polls if they had because part of the beauty of the primary caucus process is small states like Iowa and New Hampshire, where you didn't necessarily need a mint in order to to make a name right. for yourself, you could actually grow. But, and if they had if they had included the smaller states that are the front end, saying, "Listen, if you make a dent here, well, you, in you, Iowa you can be or New elevated. Hampshire, right. or South Carolina." Yeah. Yeah, I think that would have been fairer right. than this, these I national. Mean, as it stands, Steyer is supposed to be in the next debate because he just made the he next just made two. Well, he just made two yep. percent. And Steyer, I don't want anywhere near this stuff. Um, but the, he is literally a product of throwing enough money at the problem. And if some and does that and does that mean that they'll make room for eleven? Does somebody have to drop yeah, out, or there's two debates? So there'll be it's supposed to be two debates. So it'll be six six in one and five in another, right? If, if, under under that. That, that is assuming now, that is assuming though that the poll numbers don't shift because there are some that are literally teetering on the brink of that two percent. I, I think once you're in, you're in. I think it's because I, I don't think it's a slide. No, there's a cutoff date. There's, there's, a, cutoff there's date. a cutoff date. Right, right. No, a cutoff date, but it's not like if you slid in the poll that had you in, now it has you out. No, no, yeah. but the at, in is enough to have you right. in. Right, right, right. Yeah, I right. think that I just can – oh, sorry, a couple things. First of all, the DNC, I've heard Tom Perez say this, the reason that nobody, at least he said this in the last debate, who was at below 2% and the polls at this time – 
um, who's in, who's actually in the race, landed up winning any primaries. But I just want to get back to the Andrew Yang thing because it actually was is actually go back to '72. I always go back to this election because there are so many similitudes. It's amazing here. But George McGovern that year proposed a thousand dollars to give to every American citizen, and it was actually similar to what Milton Freeman had proposed. You know, this kind of, this is where Andrew Yang proposed with some kind of libertarian, some liberals, some conservatives. It's kind of it's where the way it kind of squishes around you know the political spectrum. But Milton Freeman supported something similar in terms of the negative income tax. McGovern proposed giving $1,000 to every American, and he, this made Hubert Humphrey, the former vice president and senator from Minnesota, have to go to McGovern's right and saying basically they're giving an incentive, he says, at the time for folks not to work. So, you know, they, that was the last time actually right. a major candidate in the primary yeah. made it his centerpiece of his domestic campaign. And Andrew Yang's campaign, you know, Andrew Yang is not yet seen as one of the top-tier candidates. That's why no candidate has really right. necessarily gone after him yet. But Are, obviously, if he gets in the top three, it becomes a huge issue. Right. Now, it, it, this has got 2016 Republican ticket written all over it. I mean, we— huh? We had front runners, and then we had just a barrage of candidates going in, and then we ended up with Trump. I mean, this time, this time, yeah, Trump was floating around at two and three percent, right? For, but forever. we had front runners, and, and then and he like, jumped ahead and never relinquished, right? But at this point, we had a, we had Jeb Bush, that was largely looked at as uh, one of the front runners. He uh, was an establishment front runner. He wasn't. Right. He wasn't a front runner. Front runner. Right. But it, but, but what I'm but what, what I'm saying. Was, but what I'm saying is, this, I mean, Chris this, Christie may have been the closest, but that said, his sizzle died a couple of years prior. Right. But but what I'm saying is, does 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 that history make Joe Biden nervous? I mean, it's, it's reasons why you have elections in the Democratic Party. We are having elections. If they had, if they were having primaries and caucuses in the Republican Party, they might be nervous too, considering they've now canceled four already, um, in spite of the fact the president does have challengers. But details. We'll talk about that another week. Um, but, no, but I think yeah. it's worth mentioning repeatedly. Uh, I, I understand we're not talking about them, but we have one side that is not has canceled primaries we'll, and caucuses. We'll, we'll talk about that next week. Now, but what I'm talking about now, now is the the the, the <clears throat> Beto versus governor uh Beto versus uh versus mayor Pete. Um the the hell yes, we're coming to take away your AK-47s and your and your AR-15s. But, but hold on, Link, is there is there somebody out there that could overtake that wouldn't be expected like is Andrew Yang the next Donald Trump? Is Pete Buttigieg in the same realm as a Donald Trump? I mean, I'll have to turn to Rich here. I don't. I don't yep. think Jimmy Carter was exactly the consensus favorite going no. into '76. He was. He 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 was arrived at eventually. Um, yep. The Gerald Ford was challenged by Ronald Reagan. Uh, I don't have the slightest idea where Richard Nixon was on round two when he won the presidency, uh, but I'm going to yep. go out on a limb and say he probably was not the odds-on favorite to be the Republican nominee again. Uh, so, and, Rich, I'll defer to you. Yeah, okay. In 68, you had George Romney, the Michigan governor, was the original nominee. Then he was interviewed by a Detroit television station. And he basically said that basically George Romney, the short of it was that he had been he had gone to Vietnam and at the time he had been kind of skeptical about the US role in Vietnam, then he became an ardent supporter of the Johnson administrations and he said he was essentially brainwashed and by the diplomatic corps and by the and by the generals over there 
So after he said he was brainwashed, um, that basically that was that was when this campaign began to implode. And eventually Nixon got the nomination. There was later a challenge that year from New York governor. There was a challenge earlier from Nelson Rockefeller. He kind of got in, got out. But Nixon got the nomination. In 76, Jimmy Carter was not the front runner. The original front runner, very similar to Joe Biden, was an establishment candidate who was probably a little more to, more to the right than where his party was. And that was Henry Scoop Jackson, who had been a supporter going back to the Vietnam War, had been very strong on defense but very munificent on, on um, domestic policy. In 1992... <laughs> Bill Clinton had not, at this time in 1990, 1991, Bill Clinton had not even announced his candidacy. It was October 3rd. Right now, Jerry Brown and Paul Songus and Tom Harkin and Bob Kerry, those were the Democratic candidates, and Doug Wilder. And eventually it actually would help Bill Clinton in many respects. If you look at the early polling, Doug Wilder was the governor of Virginia, the first elected African-American governor in American history. He was winning the African-American vote. He dropped out early. And when he dropped out, a lot of those African-American votes went to Bill Clinton because he had kind of a national, natural inclination um, as a southern governor to appeal to them and eventually got about 70 percent. But so, those, so in the case of Jimmy Carter, no, Scoop Jackson was a front runner. And go back to back in Nixon's right. case, it would have been George Romney in the case of 1992. It would have probably at this time around, it, would have, it probably would have been either Jerry Brown or Paul Songus. And right. all of which were trailing the person who didn't run, which was Mario Cuomo. Right. But, yeah. but again, but again, is... Is there somebody that has the potential to really uh, surprise everybody by getting and corralling both the establishment and the non-establishment? I mean, are Democrat? we talking a true surprise out of nowhere? I mean, I don't think Steyer is going to do it. I don't think uh, Beto is going to do it. I don't think Castro is going to do it. It's the the Energizer Bunny of the of the primary has been Elizabeth Warren, that more and more people are, and this is the narrative that you tend to see for people who are successful, right. um, that they, they, have a, they have a slow boil that begins to catch on, and more and more people point out, and so the last rally that Elizabeth Warren had, which I forgot where it was, it was supposed to be slated for- New York uh, City. Right. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right, because yeah, it, 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 was, it was the uh, scene of the- Washington, uh, Washington Square. Of, of the uh, the government <clears throat> workers fire, right. um, and they were expecting, I believe, seven thousand and twenty thousand showed up, and more importantly, when the press narrative st- stuck around, so not just the crowd size, as the president would have you know, um, <laughs> but actually pointing out that w- when she stuck around for an additional two hours after the event, taking selfies and actually answering questions for people. That's a different level of grassroots support right. that actually, and from my experience, that's the narrative that generally leads to somebody who is a nominee, if not eventually the president. Right. That's what I saw with Bill Clinton. That's what, I, that's what I've seen with other folks. That's what it was with Obama, it, that people stick and around. With, and with Trump. And with Trump. Yeah. And with Trump, yeah. So they would show, it wasn't so right. much sticking around, but they would show up. They would, right. sh- they would they show up. The they show. were true believers. And, and the... And of the candidates out there, yeah, Beto's got the people who hate guns. Okay, great. Um, it, it's, but there there is something larger at play, and it's not clear to me who else as, other than Warren has as, that narrative. As Bernie what about his, Cory Booker? Well, hold on. Before you get to Cory Booker, has Bernie run his course? Alan Moore? I think so. I, I think that I think that Warren is taking over Bernie World. Um, and and uh, and, and, if, put, and which if is you weird look, since they are if, very different people. And right. if you look and if you look at if you look at Bernie plus Warren, they 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 
they they tromp all over Biden right. as a combo. If you if you look at that body of the progressive side of the party and add it together, um, uh, then then you know Biden is still the front runner, but you know it's this that big three that's right. that's 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 well but, out in front so of everybody this, else. So, so, but, so but Rob the this, engineer might need to bleep me uh, uh, on this. So if your button, if your finger's ready, uh, you <laughs> might want to do this because there was a story that I just saw which blows my mind. The 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 Bernie Bros that are still out there apparently, and it's either a quarter or a third of Bernie folks that are either going to vote for Bernie or Trump. To which I respond, "What the yeah. is wrong yeah. is, is wrong with you people?" Um, so, so to 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 Alan's point, but yeah, if you this, can combine those, it's great. Assume those folks stay on the reservation. But, but here's the thing: is, is 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 Bernie dangerous right now to the Democratic Party? He's still raising money, he's still garnering support, but it seems like he's almost a distraction or even an unpinned hand grenade. To the Democrats right now. No, the, the, the pressure the, build the, on the, them to the drop biggest, out. The biggest risk to the, uh, risk the Democratic Party right now is actually the moderators of these debates asking non <laughs> no no seriously asking nonsense <laughs> questions about things that are never going to see the light of day. Do you honestly see the House of Representatives or the United States Senate taking a vote on reparations anytime in the near future? No. No, it's just not going to happen. In spite of the their, their, the validity of the conversation, right. it ain't there. Or the yeah, what was the open borders question decriminalizing? Jesus Christ, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, these are not things that anyone would ever have in their natural talking points for any realistic reason. Right. That said, it's a pity that that as far as I can tell, right. nobody on the stage when those questions get asked calls out going. Huh? <laughs> I, got, I got to tell you something. You don't usually it's monologue. It's like when they asked Chris Christie about the question about, um, they asked him the question about um, online, um, about about uh, a football. And he said something like, why are we talking, you know, he said something to the effect of, why are we talking about, why are we talking about this at a debate? And then everyone started, um, start, and everyone started cheering him. Right. Uh, by the way, you don't usually monologue like that. That was a pretty good, that was a pretty good stint for you. Dan Lipner can chat. Yeah, I was watching The Incredibles, so I'm waiting for. Uh... <laughs> hey, um, no capes. We, we've got we've got a couple of we got a couple of minutes left. Uh, one of the things that uh, we did want to talk about is um, this week uh, w- the Washington Journalism Corps lost a, a, a true monumental figure uh, in in news and journalism, and just a great figure here in Washington. A, a really Wonderful woman, uh, longtime ABC and NPR uh, journalist Cokie Roberts uh, succumbed to her battle with breast cancer at the age of seventy-five this week. And uh, Alan, you and I were were reminiscing about you know just mm-hmm. the the little contact I've had. You've, I think you've had more contact with her than I did, but uh, she truly was a pioneer in journalism. She was a she was an early uh, uh, groundbreaker among women. She wasn't the first, but she was uh, in that first wave, um, and and always a professional. Um, but but my contact with her, which was not extensive, came largely through my late wife, who was also a journalist right. at CBS in the old days, and they and they worked alongside each other. There was a whole cadre of 
of women who were sort of uh, producers in the Washington and, or, journalism in the, in scene. the Washington political journalistic scene, um, and 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 the most memorable uh, encounter that I had with Koki really had to do with it. It, it, it towards the end of my wife's uh, my late wife's uh, life, I was talking to Koki. She was asking about her. She was concerned in a, in a genuine way. It wasn't, there was nothing in any way artificial about it. And she was trying to comfort me and she was particularly generous to a, a couple of friends of mine who were also present um, at, at the time uh, on, on that occasion. And she was a class all the way class in terms of uh, her work in journalism, the writing that she did. She always stayed loyal to the end to National Public Radio to NPR. Right, uh, that was her. That was her. her That's where her, she made her bones. Her mainstay, yeah. but she had this personal, classy, caring side that, frankly, is not always present. It's not nearly present enough today and she had it in spades to the end right. um so the loss uh, there's institutional and and dc loss but for and, many people a huge personal loss because tell you, she had genuine friends and, and i will yeah. tell you that everybody that uh, you know in, in the in the couple of times that i've dealt with with koki uh always approachable always just the sweetest kindest never had an ego in a town full of journalists with egos. She was one of the few that that was truly grounded and truly real. Uh, you know, I talked to friends of mine who worked with her at NPR. Uh, friends of mine that interned for her. Uh, she remembered everybody's name on staff, and it was and it was a it, it was a point to her to get to know her staff. You know, having interns sit in her office and talking, get to know him. It, it, you don't see that anymore. And, and I, and I really, really, really fear that, you know, with the loss of Cokie Roberts, that we, we've really lost, a, you know, a, a true icon of the business, Dan Lipner. So I've met Cokie Roberts a couple times. My first actual interaction uh, with her was in 1996, um, working on the Clinton Gore campaign. And one of my bosses, who is truly a Cokie Roberts fanboy, I don't know how else to describe it, uh, when Cokie had called the press office, he ran into the office and demanded that she be put on speakerphone. And before uh, she, she, she got a question out, uh, uh, th this my boss in, professed his undying love for a Cokie Roberts, um, and, and and she took it in. In, in absolutely good, in, 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 absolutely oh, good nature, act. And, and playing around with it, and then the interview uh, proceeded as, as planned. Um, I, I next time I encountered her was in 2000 Democratic uh, National Convention, and she couldn't have been more polite, and I was uh, and just asking basic questions, but also interacting with folks right. and whoever saw her. Um, and that's what every person that I know that has encountered her has had the exact. Same that feeling, and I will not read the 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 quote that I just shared no, no, on no, here. No, 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 I don't um, want to disgrace because, it. Just, because a classy woman don't. deserves is is, is is so much beyond yeah. that statement. Uh, he's talking. Uh, what he's talking about is is a quote from the from the president that he made. But yeah, we're not we're not we're not going to repeat it. I'm not going to. But but that said, Cokie Roberts is. It, 
was an impressive act, and I think she's shown what not just uh, journalism but political journalism should be, Um, being able to cordially engage in sometimes hard conversations and hard questions, but still realizing that the interests of the people involved and those who are actually engaged in it are not necessarily horrible people. There, there are hard issues, but that doesn't mean the people behind them are, and, and are he, terrible. And here's the thing is, you, you want to talk about somebody who is truly loyal to the craft, uh, who truly took the the journalism, Some you know, in a day when, you know, FaceTime on talking head shows and on cable news is, is the big thing, she really took pride in the way that... Uh, she handled herself as a journalist first and as a public figure second. Does that sound about right, Alan Moore? Am I misreading that? Or Well, she, I, no, I, I, I mean, think she knew she so. was a public figure. In, in, in fairness, remember, her father was a majority leader of the House of Representatives. Right, right. Uh, uh, Hale Boggs, uh, uh, an original member of the, the Warren Commission, right. who who famously had doubts about the single bullet theory, of all things. I feel like I'm rich here now, uh, <laughs> sharing some of this stuff. Um, sorry, Rich. Um, but, 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 and, and he, he was in a plane in 1972 that disappeared up in Alaska right. that was never found. found he right. was a member of Congress, and his, his widow, Lindy Boggs, then served eight terms in the House replacing him. So right. she grew up in a... In a in a powerful political family, her brother, her late brother, was was, uh, was a big time lobbyist. Was big time um, uh, lobbyist, um, and a sister who was mayor of a town. Right. Sadly, all of her siblings. There was another brother who died in infancy. Right. They're, they're all gone, and you now know, she's gone. And and it's it's. Uh, but to your point about her 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 journalistic integrity, um, she really. She she was the matron of of journalism. She would critique um, people uh, stories that she said. You know, I don't quite know if it's it's ripe yet. If if the if the background stories were there, and those were left and right, she she would she would speak to those issues. So right. the actual integrity of the trade, she was always there. Yeah, on. right, right. Well, uh, obviously, our 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 thoughts go out to uh, to her husband Stephen, who I, I can't imagine the the, the loss. Uh, and, and the and the rest of the, of the Roberts family, it's um, our, our hearts and our sympathies go out to you. She will be truly missed, not in this, not just in Washington D.C., but nationwide. She truly wasn't a national figure in journalism. Uh, with that, on behalf of uh, Alan Moore, Dan Lipner. Uh, Rich Rubino, as always, thank you, sir. Uh, Eric, thank you. Our, Eric Thomas, our producer, Rob, the engineer. Thanks for keeping us honest. We will see you next time. And remember, you can download us as a podcast on your favorite podcast services, whether it's Google, Apple, uh, Spotify. Eric, we're on Spotify, right? Yes, just wave yes. Okay. Uh, any of the big ones, you can find us. We're kind of a big deal now. Have a great week, America. We'll see you next time.